Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Hauck. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published across North America, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. Today, we're speaking with Elizabeth Whitlow, Executive Director of the Regenerative Organic Alliance, an organization working to create a new certification standard for food, textiles, and personal care ingredients. The ROA was founded by Patagonia, Dr. Bronner's, and the Rodale Institute. Her role at the Regenerative Organic Alliance is the culmination of over 20 years working in the field of organic agriculture. She began her career as an advocate for shade-grown, fair trade, and organic coffee growers in Central America. Since then, she's worked across the spectrum of elevated certifications both in farming and ranching, earning high-level placements with organizations such as CCOF and Earth Claims. She says her greatest honor is to serve a planet in tremendous need of each and every one of us. She lives and grows food and community in Northern California. Elizabeth, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Hi, Amy. So happy to be here. Thank you. I love edible magazines, and I love the title of your podcast, Eat, Drink, Think. (laughs) It's so, so great. Thank you for having me. Awesome. We're glad to have you. Well, our longtime listeners will kind of heard a lot about labels and certifications over the course of this podcast, but the topic can be a little nuanced and maybe even confusing. So I think we should start with some basics. Can you please give us your definitions of regenerative and organic and talk a little bit about the challenges facing agriculture that prompted the Regenerative Organic Alliance to come together to do this work? Yes. Okay. I'm going to start with a pretty boiled down definition for regenerative that um, it, it's it's coming up so much. And, you know, there's a lot of different regenerative practices that farmers can implement. And everyone's kind of been aligned around those that are improving the soil health. But I think a really great definition I, I really resonates with me is it's a holistic systems approach to appropriate farming and context of that farm in its very unique site-specific location in this world. So that will include its this microclimate and the soil type in that area and the cultural practices on that farm. So that's kind of a succinct definition for regenerative. Organic has a very long definition because it is a federal law. It's an international, uh, there's international standards and federal standards for organic. I've worked in the organic sector for quite a long time. So I was just beginning my career with uh, California Certified Organic Farmers when the federal law was going into place, and that was in 2001. And so I got to see a glimpse of how it looked prior to the National Organic Program going into effect, and then spent much of my career after it went into effect. And it is very cool because the word organic is governed by definitions that are encoded into law. So that means you can really protect organic. You would think you could really protect organic by that. However, there has been some downward pressure. And that is why the founders of the ROA came together in 2017. There was a vote, a really critical vote from the National Organic Standards Board. And I know I'm getting a little wonky and I'll get out of this rabbit hole in just a moment. Uh, The National Organic Standards Board is composed of 15 members of the community of farmers and food processors and consumers and environmental advocates and scientists. And they voted eight to seven to approve the allowance of hydroponics in organic. 
and there was a huge division within the organic industry or the organics sector at that time. And really passionate people who felt like organic really needs to happen on the ground, in the soil, and be building healthy soil and building through that method and not by um, using organically approved materials as an imported good in a plastic container. I am in the former camp. I really do believe organic should happen in the ground. And it would be hard for a hydroponic farmer to demonstrate how they're improving the earth's resources through their farming. So that's kind of where you draw a firm line. There's also were issues with animal agriculture and there still are to this day. And we can get into more details about the livestock and the allowance of really large scale confined animal feeding lots in organic production that were also causing a lot of concern. And one of the other primary motivations for the founders to create the regenerative organic certified standard. And what brought you to the Alliance specifically? I had a very dear friend who kept telling me he was on the board and he kept telling me about it. And I'm just like, that's crazy. I can't. He's like, we're looking for a program director. And I was like, I can't do that. I don't, I don't know. Like it's this whole social fairness aspect about like labor, worker welfare and other aspects of the job just were very intimidating to me. And he just said, why don't you just talk to these people at Patagonia, Elizabeth, just call them. And I was like, all right. So I did. And within minutes, I, I knew it was exactly the right job for me. And I had been preparing my whole career for it. So I pretty much was like, take me to your leader and got to meet Rose Macario, the CEO of Patagonia at the time. She handed me off to Jeff Moyer. He handed me off to David Bronner, some real heroes and sheroes who I get to serve and in the early days. And so it kind of all just fell into place from there. And I jumped into the position day after Labor Day 2018, and I've been pretty much at a steady run ever since. It's been very busy and really exciting. That's excellent. So I love what you had to say about the specific regional or even site-specific, farm-specific aspect of the idea of regenerative, that every microclimate, that every farm is different. And that made me think a bit about farm animals. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how animals fit into the idea of regenerative agriculture. Sure. Yeah, I love this topic. And and it's something actually I've heard Jeff Moyer say is like, there is no faster way to build soil than to incorporate animals onto the farm and to use, to really have animals mimic what they used to do when we had the Great Plains in the United States was um, we had this amazing soil built up after eons of indigenous people, the way they worked with the bison and the bison coming in and doing this kind of essentially they call it mob grazing. There's a variety of names for it, but you do this intensive grazing for short duration of time. And then the animals move on and that grass is allowed to rest and they move on for maybe hundreds of miles. That patch of land may rest for for months before they come back to it again. And by doing that, each time they take a bite of that blade of grass, basically it's the roots are left intact and they're still like the grass is still photosynthesizing and bringing all the juice from the sun, turning it into these sugars that go down through the roots and the root exudates and create this kind of virtuous cycle of growing those roots deeper. And then the grass grows taller. You take a bite, keeps going. And so it's just this beautiful circle. 
And that's a great way to build healthy soil. And I've seen a lot of farms integrating animals. And I heard you mention earlier, you had Reginaldo on your mm -hmm. show recently, and he's doing some incredible work. And that tree range poultry concept, I just love it. I think it's so beautiful. And poultry do a different thing when they're out there. They're foraging and pecking and scratching and moving things around. They're different from ruminants. And so there's, there's a lot of different ways that animals can contribute to building healthy soil and building really more resilient farm, helping control pests, for example, when the chickens are, are eating pests, uh, bugs and insects that might otherwise be causing um, trouble on the farm. So yeah, that's, a, I, that's probably it. I don't know if there was something else you wanted me to answer to on the animal part. No, I, I think there's that, the idea of the animals as not only one of the products of the farm, but also a key part of the idea of regenerative, I think is really interesting and possibly new to people. Can you tell me a success story that might illustrate what you see as the potential of the Alliance and its certification standard? A success story? There are so many, Amy. <laughs> I mean, I could give you some examples of some of the farms who have gotten certified with us. You know, I'll think of, I mean, there's a number of vineyards that are integrating sheep and, and also an almond orchard in Central California that is integrating sheep and poultry, laying hens. And so I think I'll, I'll focus on those because that kind of ties in with our, our last conversation. So Tablas Creek and Gurgit and Bonterra, these are all great wine grape operations in California from Central Coast to Napa to uh, Mendocino. They all... Also, Medlock Ames, another one in Sonoma County, and the Neal family vineyards over in Napa. All of these operations are integrating sheep in between the vine rows and in the time of year when the grass is growing. And they use the sheep to go in there. And well, the it's not it's not always grass. It could be like native vegetation or something that was deliberately seeded there to um, have a specific function um, in the soil. For example, mustards help with nematodes legumes fix nitrogen. Um, there's lots of different reasons for different types of cover crops. And when you bring those sheep in to graze the cover crops, it does the same thing that we were just talking about where you take a bite. And so the plant is not pulled out. It keeps growing. The roots keep growing. So they're going ever deeper and building healthy soil and pulling nitrogen down into the soil or um, pushing root hairs into the soil and building more organic matter into the soil. And I'll talk about organic matter in just a minute. Um, I want to stay focused on the sheep and the poultry. As they're integrating them into the farm, they're also depositing urine and manure, which is bringing nitrogen and organic matter into the soil as well. So it's contributing to building healthy soil while also managing the weeds. And, um, and just there's said there's scientific studies that show there is an interaction between the soil microbiome and the saliva of a grazing animal, a ruminant in particular. And so it's activating the soil microbiome. And therefore, you're getting this hype, like very hyperactivated um, soil microbiome, and that builds healthy soil. And healthy soil equals healthy plants, equals healthy people. This is a Bob Rodale, or J.I. Rodale, actually, his father, who said that long ago. And lots of people use that and say that. And I think it it is, you know, we're looking at research to show the evidence of that. And it's going to come out and really show, I'd say in the next year or two, we're going to see some very compelling scientific data that does indeed show 
that the plants grown in healthy soil are healthier. So therefore, you're getting more nutrients in those plants. And uh, I think I'll stop there and see if I answered your question completely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm thinking about those farms and because you mentioned they were in California, it made me think about drought and it makes me wonder, is regenerative farming part of the solution for our sort of more parched climate influenced world? Yeah. I'm glad you asked because I didn't, I didn't fully answer your question. You asked for a success story. And so I selected those in particular, Tablas Creek, there were 14 atmospheric rivers that sat on top of Californians last year. And many conventional operations had their soil running right off the farm into the ditch, down into the river, causing siltation in the river. The farmers were losing their natural capital, the thing they most rely on. At Tablas Creek, if you look at their Instagram, you will see back last year, they've got video of one side where it's a conventionally managed vineyard and the soil's running off because there's nothing to hold it down. There's no cover crop, no vegetative cover. On their vineyard, the rain is sinking in. It is being captured. And that is the thing about building up the soil organic matter. It basically brings more carbon into the soil and there's more structure. There's a lot, there's spaces, there's airspace where water can gather. And it's like, think about like a sponge, what, what a sponge would look like if it was full of water, a beautiful, healthy sponge just expands and holds the water and then compare it to like a little thin paper towel. It's like, it's going to be maxed out in a second and then the water will be, it won't be absorbed anymore. So that's one example during the atmospheric rivers. Now let's keep in mind that climate change is bringing us all kinds of extreme weather. It, we have drought, we have extreme heat waves, we have flooding and atmospheric rivers. So Evo at Gergich Cellars is doing a lot of scientific analysis of what's going on in his vineyards and comparing um, by permission from his neighbor. This is in the heart of Napa Valley, St. Helena. And he was out there during, we had this spike last year, right before harvest, 115 to 120 degree days, day after day for like a week. And crops literally withered on the vines in front of your eyes. And Evo's crop his vines were stressed, but his crops did not shrivel up and turn into raisins. The grapes were still harvestable and they made a beautiful vintage of wine. He, he can attest and share if you are interested. His neighbors had complete and utter 100% crop failure. They couldn't harvest anything. He was out there with a, a thermometer. The ambient temperature up about three feet high was 150 degrees at his neighbors and at his it was 105. On the soil, the neighbor's was, I can't remember what, over 120, and his was like 85 because there was a vegetative cover on the soil. And so that brings this whole, uh, it, it kind of defies logic. A lot of old-time farmers think, oh, no, you shouldn't have a cover crop because it's going to compete with moisture. It's going to compete with the vines. It's going to compete with the almond trees. But it's not true. That brings more moisture and holds more moisture in. So that small water table also is a really fascinating topic. I don't know if you've heard much about that, but you plant trees. It's probably what Reginaldo is also doing and talking about. You plant trees, you bring, bring green in, and it starts to create a small water cycle in that little region and brings more moisture. And um, I think it's really exciting stuff because we know we are in peril and we have deforested the earth. I mean, industrial agriculture and deforestation are the 
prime contributors to climate change. Um, transportation, energy, those are big ones, but industrial is industrial agriculture and deforestation to make way for industrial agriculture are egregious contributors to the changing climate. I often think about how the term conventional is maybe a misnomer when applied to farming. And I wonder if that term gets in the way of regenerative organic adoption. And if you have an idea what, what might be a more fitting opposite. Uh, it's a tough one. I, I think it's really important not to other farmers. They're already mm-hmm. operating under such thin margins. And I, I, I do it too. Sometimes I'm guilty of that. And I have to be really mindful because like, you go to the grocery store and you buy conventional or organic. So I feel like conventional is like those farmers, they want to be conventional. And so that is like a, a, a path they've chosen. We've also, you know, you could also call it industrial or chemical, chemically based farming. And I'm not really sure where the right answer is on that. I think the main thing is to um, really try not to alienate and um, vilify farmers who are just trying to survive. And, you know, we've got hundreds of millions of acres in this country that are being farmed with Roundup Ready corn and soy back to back. And those farmers, they would grow anything if they had the option. but that's what they have to grow because that's what our federal crop insurance, our federal um, crop insurance program basically forces them to grow. If they don't grow that, they stand to lose everything. If they take a chance and try and grow barley or hamut or buck, uh, buckwheat, they're not going to get any crop insurance if there's an utter crop failure. And the sad thing is they can expect a crop failure all the time because of our changing climate. So they have to go with what they, they get the most insurance. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a real conundrum. And it's a lot of it is policy driven. Our own federal farm bill drives farmers to plant these crops and a lot of influence. I'm going to say that pharmaceutical and chemical industry has very outsized influence on that lawmaking. I love that answer. I love the generosity of that answer because, of course, it's not the farmers who are choosing the technological mechanisms. But I'm curious, what else can sort of grease the skids of that shift? Because if they don't have necessarily the choice in the matter of of shifting towards agriculture that feeds the soil, what will help them? Yeah. Well, I think we're in so far, we're in so deep with the Farm Bill and with the plight of the American farmer that it has to also come from policy. It has to be a changing policy. I do think Tom Vilsack is, you know, people do tend to like, oh, he's on the, you know, he's part, he's in the pocket of Monsanto or he's, um, you know, he's all about big ag, but he's really been coming out a lot lately and saying, no, Earl Butts had it wrong. It's not get bigger, get out. We want to support all farmers. And he's did a lot to support local farm economies back in his previous era as secretary of agriculture. He was pretty favorable to, um, to local farming kind of um, policy that would support local farms or local food systems. And, and I think that is really one of the most important things we can do is help farmers feed their communities. Instead of what we're doing now is we have farmers who are growing corn for ethanol, which is a losing proposition, but they think they're convinced that it's actually a winning comp- uh, proposition. It's really not. The life cycle analysis on that does not compute. Um, and then they grow corn for processed food all the derivatives and all the things that go into all of our processed food. And then they grow corn for livestock. And oftentimes it's livestock in other countries where there's an increasing demand for 
for you know increasing middle class and increasing demand for protein and increasing confined animal feedlots that they need corn and soy to feed them. So it's um, you know it's really difficult. I think we need to look to other governments that have successfully um, supported their farmers, and there are some great examples of this. And I'm going to say the very first thing we have to do is true cost accounting. What does it cost to grow this crop? No bullshit. No, no, you don't get to hide the fact that those pesticides came at a cost to the planet. The fertilizer came at a cost to the planet in their, in the sourcing of them and in the application of them. And so if we don't capture those true costs, then we never know. And we don't capture the true costs. And it is going to behoove all the chemical companies to keep us from capturing that. So we need to do that. We need to insist on that. And then we need to think about other ways to reward farmers. Like, what about when you build healthy soil? Why don't you get premiums for that? Why don't you get a premium for bringing back the songbirds that we thought we lost in this region? Like, those are worthy things that we need to celebrate and reward farmers for. And there's some talk of this. And there's some new, um, you know, we've got a whole other year now to talk about Farm Bill because of the fiasco in D.C. recently on the spending bill. So, that's great. That gives us a little more time and people need to get educated and be informed and talk to your policymakers. They're going to listen to you. They, they have to. That's their job. And so the more we call, the more vocal we are, the more we can get it heard and have it heard. The Common Ground, the new movie by Kiss the Ground, our friends at Kiss the Ground have their sequel. Mm-hmm. And that one's great. It's really informative and um, really shows what can be done. Agriculture absolutely can be a solution to so many of our problems instead of a problem contributing to more problems. You mentioned countries that are doing a good job with supporting farmers. Can you give us an example? Totally. Denmark, Austria, Holland. Those ones have successful examples. There were some others like, um, where was it back in Bhutan that was going to be all organic? And then some things went awry. There was like, it was all these political upheaval and they weren't able to do it. And then the chemical companies all wanted to point to this example as if, see, you can't use organic to feed the world. And that's, that's a real myth that should always be debunked. That is also completely untrue. Organic is so productive when you do regenerative organic and you diversify your crops and you calculate the, um, if we calculated the quality of the calories that we are being, that we are producing on a land, on a piece of land, instead of just the yield of how many bushels of corn you got out of that land at what cost, we would, everything would be changed. So it's just, it's just called math. Like we're not doing math. And, and really, if we could just do that, I think we'd make a lot of changes. But, you know, I would look to Denmark and Austria in particular. And, um, in Denmark, I have, um, I'm a big fan of this man. His name is Paul Holmbeck. And he is on the IFOAM International Board. If you ever want an intro to him, I'd love to introduce you. He's actually from the States, but been living there for 20 plus years. And he has done tremendous things to impact policy in Denmark. So school children and people in hospitals eat organic. And I could just stop right there. Like if you prioritize, as a society prioritizes feeding the healthiest food to the growing children and to the elderly or to the sick, like that is, I would just say that is what's right. And I love that. And um, Paul has done really great work in Denmark. And then he was invited to to consult with, with the government of Holland on that. And then, so he's doing work there and now he's working in Africa as well. 
And we have a growing movement of regenerative organic certified in Austria. And we have a really awesome former board member who is on the EU com- uh, mission for the EU commission for healthy soil. And he's part of the lighthouse network of farmers. And he's an incredible advocate, um, very evangelical about earthworms and healthy soil and um, growing food and all of these things. His name is Alfred Grand of Grand Farms. So always happy to introduce you if you'd like to meet any of these folks. And um, they, they tell me like there's, it's, they think the largest portion of organic farmers is in Austria. It's a huge percentage of their farmland is organic. At the risk of entering down another slightly wonky rabbit hole, which of course would please me to no end personally, but I, I, I'm curious about what you said with respect to the quality of calories when we're talking about scale, because as you mentioned, something that people say all the time is that scale is the most important piece in feeding the world. That if, the, if a program like Regenerative or Organic can't scale, then why is it feasible? And you mentioned the quality of the calories versus the... I wasn't sure what the alternative was, the quantity or you were with respect to corn, I think you mentioned. So can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I was talking about the quality of the calories, the nutrient density of the food. How many people does it feed a diet that you actually can sustain yourself on? And if you look at a field that is like 350 million acres that we have that is producing ungodly amounts of corn, Who's eating that? And besides, like, let's talk about the fact that we have a nation where two and three people are obese and we have most our top three healthcare challenges are relating to diet. We got diabetes, heart disease, and, you know, people, obesity comes in many forms and it, it hurts people in the long run. They can't, you know, they can't live a healthy life. They end up needing a lot of medical attention. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's all part of us pushing this terrible diet out of our agricultural system. Same with like food stamps and this commodity food programs that dump the cheapest, most inferior calories into populations that don't have otherwise the resources to go and buy healthy, nourishing food grown in their community or near. Yeah. And it's tough. Like you live in Alaska. What do you eat in the winter? What, I mean, you, you, what do you all eat? Like if we think of the days of old or like Northern Europe, fermented foods, you ferment and you have a root cellar and you eat a lot of roots, a lot of beets and potatoes and, and all kinds of fermented things. Um, but you know, there's different regions that um, don't get to live like I do in California, where I get to pick something in my garden like every day of the year I can find something growing. So along the lines of what you're saying, there's this perception that organic food is food for the people with the privilege to pay extra for it. How is the Regenerative Organic Alliance thinking about food access as part of the larger picture of this new framework? Well, we're a really small organization, Amy. We've grown a lot. We're now like nine people plus some contractors, but we don't, we probably need double that to answer the, to serve the demand. So we're super busy just responding to inquiries, applications and, and so forth. You know, if I could, we'd have a lot more people um, working on our team and we would really help to increase access 
to food by building local food systems up and helping ensure that um, farmers have an outlet and a way to connect with their consumers and sell locally where they cut out the middle people and farmers can capture more of that. You know, if you look at the farmer's market model, there's some programs called like WIC, the Women, Infant, Children program that gives recipients a coupon and they double their money if they take that to the farmer's market. Instead of $15, it turns into $30. So that's $30 a week in fresh produce, teaching people to shop in season, always eat in season because that is going to be the most affordable produce that you find to always, you know, go to the end of the market if you're going to a farmer's markets so that you can, you know, farmers don't want to harvest a bunch of things and then take it home. So they're going to be selling it for maybe a more, a little bit more affordable, but there's a lot of tricks of the trade and ways to help. I would say maximize that having people that CSA model, the community supported agriculture model, I think is really beautiful. The farmers get an advance from their members in the spring with the promise to deliver a box of food every week. And you get a lot of diversity there. You get a lot of seasonal food. You keep it close to home. Um, I live just in Sonoma County and Marin County is south of me. And they've got an incredible, uh, incredible program that they're doing there with farmers markets and increasing access. And part of it is somebody in the community who doesn't, you know, who, who has access to their program can go and shop in a market every single day of the week and get $15 worth of produce. So or, or anything. They can use it to buy meat or bread or butter or whatever, but they get 15 market dollars every day. And so programs like that, I think are really uh, worth exploring. And I don't think it's about taking the price, driving the price down. I think it's more about cutting out middle people and connecting consumers more directly to the farmers in their own food shed. So again, maybe leaning towards policy in a yeah. way when you're talking about WIC, WIC and SNAP. Yeah. So that makes me think a little bit about the idea that you mentioned before. Organic is a legal governmental standard. And of course, there are some various international standards and state standards as well. So why does the Regenerative Organic Alliance work on creating a privately managed certification standard? Because we wanted to move fast. There's, we don't have time to wait. It, it is so urgent that we do something about this today. It takes years to change the federal law. And I have watched in the animal welfare section particularly. Um, and actually, Jeff Moyer, um, formerly the chair of our board, the founding board member, he was on the animal welfare task force for the National Organic Program. They deliberated for years. They finally put forth a recommendation that one got approval from industry, from stakeholders, from farmers and ranchers, got put into law, and it was struck out by Donald Trump. With it, his first week of office, he struck down, he put executive order, pulled off a bunch of, pulled back a bunch of that kind of legislation. So it's a federal law at the mercy of whatever crazy politics are happening. So for that reason, it should be private. And we, um, Patagonia Bronner's invested a lot of resources into uh, making this a process where we brought in a lot of public uh, feedback and stakeholder input. And we had task forces for each of our pillar, taking in all the input from the, the pilot program. The pilot program itself came at a very hefty price. They had contracted out with national, um, NSF International to be like oversee that, um, global pilot. And then that's when they hired me to come in and oversee NSF. And that was a very uh, expensive endeavor. 
hundreds of thousands of dollars to conduct the pilot program and and then to take in all that feedback. So there's been a huge investment in this in a way that was really trying to honor all the stakeholders they invited around the table. And now we can still be responsive to emergent science, emergent technology or changes because we're a privately held standard, but we're following all the best practices of international standards. That's what I brought to it for sure was like we looked at ISO 1765 is what it's called for the really wonky among you. And hopefully nobody really knows what ISO 1765 is because then I'm truly among the wonky, but it is a standard. It's a standard organization that talks about conformity assessments and any type of certification scheme does that. And so if you follow those best practices, you uphold those, then you have a system in place that is uh, very credible on the world market and um, and goes through things in a very equitable way and transparent way. Thanks. I'm thinking again just about how you mentioned Reggie earlier and Tree Range Farms, who we had on the podcast recently. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about his project is how he's acknowledging and uplifting and using really ancient practices as far as farming. And it seems like regenerative itself, too, is not new technology. It's basically, mm-hmm. you know, throwing back to older technology. And I'm wondering how has the Alliance maybe worked to acknowledge Indigenous practices or Indigenous culture bearers who have maybe been holding these practices for the hundreds of years or the decades that conventional farming has pushed them aside? Yeah, that's a really tough one. I can tell you um, that I, I feel like we have a lot more work to do in that area. We, Ade Romero Briones from First Nations was on our board and so insightful and brought that wisdom to the conversation. But I don't think, you know, we were so focused in the throes of launching the certification that I don't feel like we did justice to the conversation with Ade and that we still have a long ways to go on that, quite frankly. It's something that I really hope we can do in the future. And I, I think there's really fundamental opposing needs there too. Like if you consider that the whole idea of farming in most places from settlers and colonizers really represents the taking of indigenous land. I don't know how you find a pathway through there. Part of that is the land back movement. Part of that would be helping indigenous people back on their land and honoring that. And I don't know how I would go and say that to a fifth generation cattle rancher or rice farmer that, you know, that isn't their land and it needs to go back to this particular tribe. Who's going to broker that deal? Who's going to pay that? I don't know. But I think that's, that would be the first step besides like, I mean, people talk about, yeah, we could acknowledge it, but what is that going to do? Do words make it any better? I don't know. I think Partially, potentially, there's the whole idea of stewardship versus resource extraction is a step in what Rehi would probably call an indigenous mindset. Yes. That maybe drives the conversation forward. Yeah. He speaks so beautifully on those topics. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, if I'm a small or new or struggling farmer and I have a deep concern for soil and planet how accessible is regenerative agriculture? Maybe you can take an example of maybe I'm starting fresh or maybe I have a farm that's conventional. You can choose. And is the certification expensive? What What are you doing to remove barriers to entry? Well, Rodale has a whole team of people who are helping farmers 
they go out, they will consult with them. In some states, they get they can do it for free. And they're hoping to continue to expand that program. In other regions, they do have to get paid for their services, but they will go and help a farmer develop, like look at their farm plan, look at their systems and help them see what is going to be the most accessible way to implement some of the first core regenerative practices. And it it often really depends on, you know, it always depends. What is that farmer growing? What are her challenges? What are her, what are the seeds she's sourcing and what kind of possibilities are there to do something like the roller crimper method in her region? Or what would be, you know, another way to manage the weeds, but having, you know, keeping the ground covered with a vegetative cover and protecting the soil is probably the first and foremost practice you would want to figure out. Bringing in diversity, that shouldn't be too, too costly for a farmer to bring in like plant insectary rows and hedgerows. And it's astounding what that does for the productivity on the farm and to um, increase resilience and decrease the need for pesticides or pest controls. So those are a couple ideas just as far as implementing regenerative practices. But I think we could like, again, go look to policy and see that the NRCS has technical service providers all over this country. They need training. They need to learn how to help with this. Land-grant universities are funded by the pharmaceutical and the big ag companies. So their research and their what they're advocating for is for farmers to get precision fertile, uh, precision agriculture, fancy tractors, to use more materials, to apply more pesticides and more herbicides and to plant more GMO seeds. Nobody who's creating GMO seeds is doing it in out of an, any sense of altruism to help a farmer. They're producing GMO seeds because they are driving a market. They are going to get paid for it. And they're going to get the farmers stuck in this treadmill of having to buy that seed every year instead of being able to save their own seed, which farmers did for eons. So those are some examples of ways that um, you could implement regenerative practices in a pretty cost-effective way or find other ways to support farmers in transitioning. There is a cost share program for organic that is administered by the USDA or depending on the state, like California does the, um, they issue the refunds through the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Very simple process. You basically send in a copy of your receipt from the certifier, the approved organic certifier, copy of your certificate, and you get $750 back per scope. And there's three scopes, four scopes, really. There's grower, livestock, handler, and then wild harvest. So you can get all that money back if you have all, if you're engaged in all four of those activities. Most are usually just doing growing and maybe some livestock are growing and handling, but that's $1,500. And certification isn't as expensive as people like to say it is. It's the, it's the most effective marketing dollar any farmer could have is to spend a couple thousand dollars on organic certification. So that they don't have to tell everybody who walks by, oh yeah, no, I, I'm not certified organic, but I don't use pesticides. They just have a sign. I'm certified organic or I'm mm-hmm. regenerative organic certified. And then they don't have to explain anything to the consumers because most consumers understand what that means. And so having that certificate is a way to um, very easily convey that to stores, retailers, consumers, farmers markets, and so forth. For our program, it's $250 for um, the farmers under a million, $500 for farmers who sell over a million dollars worth of crops. They do have to pay for the certification 
from the certifier. We do not do this, the audits. We lean in on the organic certifier. So they do it at the same time as the organic audit. So it removes um, kind of duplication and redundancy and helps the farmer not have to set aside two days this year for an audit, but rather they do it all in one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have been at a market where one of those guys who's like, I don't use pesticides, and you know that they are they have beautiful produce and they're local, and you definitely want to support them. What they've sometimes said to me is the paperwork is too onerous, or the process, I just can't fit it into my you know, farming schedule. And I was just curious if, I mean, it, perhaps it's a rising tides kind of situation where the idea of the standard becomes more popular, and therefore even those really good land stewards and growers who maybe can't jump in yet still get some kind of of benefit from just everybody knowing more about the idea of what what the benefit is. Yeah. I mean, I've done thousands of farm inspections. I was an organic inspector. It was one of my favorite jobs in the world and spent a lot of time around the kitchen table, driving around in the truck, on the back of the truck bed, looking at records in the barn. It's really not that onerous. And I would challenge any farmer to like, okay, let me come and help you because it's actually not that hard to sit down and describe your farm plan, describe your approach, your, your, you know, what kind of seeds, where you're getting your seeds, what are your challenges with fertility? What are your challenges with pests and how do you deal with those? How do you harvest and store your crops to prevent any contamination? How do you make sure that you did harvest like, you know, 20 tons of carrots and not, you know, a hundred tons of carrots. Like where, where are the records to show this? It's not that hard. And any good business person needs to keep record of their activities. They need to see if they don't keep record, how are they going to know that last year I sold a hundred tons of carrots and I thought I only sold 20. Like it's just basic business. And farmers are incredible business people, incredible thinkers and innovators and very dynamic and very hardworking. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that farmers can't or don't do it. They, they really, it's not that not that big a deal. And I think it's just, it's an excuse. And, and the conventional industry loves to feed that to farmers. Oh, that's a bunch of barriers. That takes so much time. It costs so much money. And it's, you know, why should you have to explain your things? You're not stupid. You know mm-hmm. how to farm. And I've heard people say that, like, we don't think farmers are stupid. We shouldn't tell them what to do. Nobody ever said a certification says a farmer isn't smart. It's just that they have to demonstrate how they meet that standard. It sounds like there's a perception issue that maybe might be shifting yeah. too. I, I love that you have experience in the field with certifying that gives you some really great connections and in your current position. I'm curious if there are regions of the country where you see some exciting growth potential for regenerative agriculture. Well, we are global. We are seeing mm-hmm. it all over the world. We're in 95 countries right now. So, yeah, we've got a lot of exciting things happening around the world. I'd say here domestically, there's a lot of growth in California. Um, We've seen a lot of uptake among um, really beautiful and premium vineyard operations, but also amongst um, operations in the Midwest growing grains for food. And I love that. I love, love, love that buckwheat um, for some really innovative buckwheat uh, cereal and buckwheat snacks and Kernza being used for beer, which is really cool. That's a Patagonia project. So they're doing Kernza with 11 different breweries around the, the country so that those breweries can do it right in place. 
we have a, an amazing operation down in, in um, Arizona, dry, dry Southwest, right? And they're farming heirloom wheat and other foods um, that indigenous people in that region used to grow. And they're working with Arizona Wild and some breweries, some um, chefs, uh, Chris Bianco, the famous pizza guy, and providing their wheat to these operations for making brewing into beer and making pizza. And um, the Kernza project, if you don't know about Kernza, it's it's kind of, it's this fascinating story that I really love. I was introduced to Dr. Wes Jackson back when I first got started in this work in like the nineties after college, I was interning in, in the Ozarks and they took all us lowly interns to the land Institute for the Prairie Festival. And I met um, Wes Jackson, who was working on perennializing this grain called Kernza. And so, you know, fast forward many decades, I hate to say how many, um, and Kernza, Yvonne Chenard from Patagonia came across this Kernza story and told his people at Patagonia Provisions, like, look, do something with this, make it, let's do something. And so that's how they came to the beer story. And that Long Root Ale is a really cool story. So I encourage you and your listeners to look up Long Root Ale. So those are some of the exciting stories. I'll tell you one other one. We are, by the time this airs, we will have announced that we are at five, I think 5.6 million acres. So we're um, gaining a lot of traction around the world and bringing on a lot more animal products. So we've got a lot, a big new partner in Australia, and that's going to be cattle and lamb, beef, lamb, and pork. Cool. How do you see technology playing a role in advancing regenerative agricultural practices? I think that this industry really needs to have a wake up. We need a wake up call on how we do boots on the ground type of inspections. As much as I loved my work as an inspector, and I think you, you can never replace like that beautiful exchange of talking to a farmer and walking around the field with them and talking about their challenges and where they're, you know, looking at um, all of their systems. But I do think we could do better with all the ways, like as we learned during COVID, look at us, like you, you and I don't have, I don't have, I'd love to fly to Alaska actually to meet you, but, but we don't have to do that. We get to come here and do this online. And the whole world pivoted to this. And uh, we actually started doing some remote audits during COVID when we couldn't safely get an auditor into a community. And, you know, it, it, it worked, but I think we can get better with that. And I think there's uh, ways that we can use satellite technology and, and um, really bring down the cost of the travel, the carbon cost of the travel, the time cost of that travel. Yeah. So I, I think there's ways that we can improve on that. I think there's a lot we can do with traceability and through blockchain and digital fingerprinting and stop doing this kind of like get out the abacus and count how many pounds of this <laughs> product moved through the supply chain. So those are some ways I think we could use technology better. Yeah, that's it. And what are you most optimistic about with respect to the future of food? People... People getting more in touch with their food, people understanding how important it is to know the farmers in their community and go buy from your local farmer, eat in season. I mean, truly, like that is the most powerful thing we can do as a consumer. Learn about your local, what grows in your region? What, what time of year should you be eating that? And know your farmers. There's nothing better. And I think there's no better way to teach people you know, about the hard work of farming than to go onto the farm and see your farmer. I buy from, I have friends who are not certified, regenerative, certified organic or certified nothing, but I know who they are and I know how they farm because I drive onto the farm and I go into the barn and I get to pick out what I'm going to take home, 
we have we have little self-serve stations all over Sonoma County too during the peak of growing season you just honor system drop by and put your money in the box and pick out your produce and I wish every community had that it's a beautiful thing great well Elizabeth thank you so much for joining us yeah thank you for having me We've been listening to Executive Director of the Regenerative Organic Alliance, Elizabeth Whitlow. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local Edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com.